but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hello everybody, welcome back to The Body Serve, I'm Jonathan. And I'm James. Episode 297 of The Body Serve. We are coming to you after the completion of Miami. Elena Svitolina is back. She is. Charleston is already underway. Uh, Day one of Charleston on green clay. Kind of like an extension of the sunshine swing, but kind of an entree to the European clay season. I've been to Charleston twice, highly recommend if you're in and around the area, be sure to check it out this week. Svetlina took a wild card into Charleston to make her return to tour after having a baby last year. And she gave a very good account of herself today, losing in three sets to, if it's not one scam, it's another. <laughs> yeah, Putintseva is, is just a really tough first round out right those those drop shots are gonna run you ragged on clay so i would say it was a a pretty good return from her well that hasn't been the case for putintseva in a while right (laughs) but still you don't want to be running around for three hours in your first match sunshine double is over for a little while miami felt a bit cursed with all the rain and i think because there was so much rain and so much boredom there was just a lot of discoursing Right? I felt like every day there was a new low-impact issue that people were just really in- inflamed about and what, online. And what were they? Oh, well, there was one about Carlos fist-pumping <laughs> and, like, uh, putting his hand to his ear to sort of rev up the crowd. Well, for me, he's he's too good at this point to be still doing that stuff. That's where I fall on that issue. I agree, but... It, it was also like, why are we why are we doing this? Uh, it just feels like a, a rainy day topic that need not spill into the next day. Well, because it's annoying. It's annoying to watch. I get why it's annoying. So like... Uh, there was all this anger and rage about Francis Tiafo saying he doesn't mind people walking around during points. Again, another non-issue drummed up by some of those spammy online accounts. That was my You know what I'm talking about. Uh, I don't even know. I think so. You know this thing, they bleed into one another, the two tournaments. And then the other would have been Pickleball. (laughs) Oh yeah, I forgot about Pickleball. Uh, We've talked about this a little on the show. It's not really a topic of much interest to either of us. I understand the territorial encroachment is really annoying because public tennis courts can be hard to come by depending on where you live. Uh, But overall... I don't care about the the pickleball conversation. I think, now forgive me, but I do think that tennis makes itself look kind of small when it obsesses over pickleball. Well, the big issue here is that this exhibition with Andy Roddick, Agassi, McEnroe, and Michael Chang, that it was being played and televised at the same time as the men's final, which is kind of crazy. Yes, that's annoying. And the problem here is Sinclair Broadcasting and Tennis Channel. Like, whether or not you like the sport of pickleball, I don't care. It's not something I ever think about. The fact that our tennis broadcaster is doing such a bad job at broadcasting tennis 
to me is another issue. I don't know. I mean, we don't get Tennis Channel here, so I, I don't really feel like I have a dog in this fight. Yeah, people are always asking us to comment on the, what's happening on Tennis Channel, and we really don't know because that is not how we watch tennis here. We don't have that option. To me, it feels like pickleball is... It feels like a Hialai thing. Do you remember in Mad Men where Pete was saying, oh, Hialai is the next big sport and they were going to promote it in the through the agency? It's not a thing, right? It never caught on. Uh, I kind of... I just don't really think pickleball will become a major force in American sports. I really don't. So, <laughs> so like, the entire tennis world attacking this this sport is just... It's a little much for me. But again, I get the, the territorial dispute. I get the uh, anger about, like, the crypto bros and the... I don't know, is it, what, private equity that's funding this thing or venture capital? Yeah, I don't know that you can sit here and say definitively that pickleball is not going to become a thing. Because if people are willing to throw enough money at it, this is America. Like, stranger things have happened. (laughs) Very true. The question is, will enough people watch it in the long term? Like, that's what will define if if it sticks around. Will people pay to go see it in person as well? Will advertisers pay for your ears and eyes? Patrick Abedova. Wow. 30 titles. That's a big deal. She's only the second active player currently who has 30 titles behind Venus Williams, famously at 49. I mean, she's one of the most successful players of her generation, but also one of the most unpredictable players of her generation. Except when we get to finals. She has a very strong record in finals. The active list of most titles on the W Tour, Venus, tragically... Stuck for years at 49. Petra now with 30. Simona Halep, 24. Azarenka, 21. Kuznetsova, 18. Pliskova and Svitolina with 16. She's 33 years old, which is, as you know, not ancient anymore in tennis. But she hasn't won a title at this level, a WTA 1000, in five years, since Madrid in 2018. Back then it was called a Premier Mandatory. And since... The 1,000 level events have taken shape. Basically, the Premier 5, Premier Mandatory, and now the 1,000s. She is one of the most successful players at this level. So you'll see the WTA uh, tweet stats, and they're all basically since 2009. I got onto this, I deleted a tweet, uh, (laughs) because I found like the stats that the WTA was sharing about the 1,000 level tournaments to be misleading. I was told that it's since 2009, so I retracted. But Petra has won nine titles at this level, and in her generation, only Vika has more than her. I think we should be at a point where we can talk about a win like this from Petra without framing the whole narrative around the home invasion in December 2016. That's something that really it kind of grinded my gears this weekend mm-hmm. because she's come back since then she's made a slam final she's made another slam semi like it's been it's been six years and petra has been sh- showing us this entire time that she is still a serious tennis player you know uh, i don't i don't know it i felt like there was more to focus on with this win than trying to create this overcoming narrative 
Yeah, I mean, when she came back years ago, she had an incredible run and won a bunch of titles in a row, right? She she built up this very strong record in finals. So I get where you're coming from. It's still an amazing achievement to to live through what she did and come back to playing at this level. Does uh, she want to be reminded of it all the time? Probably not. Uh, and at this point, Petra is just a great tennis player like she's always been. Well, my point in saying it is that when you talk about it like that, you're framing her as a ceremonial player, which she's not. Right. You can talk about that at the end of her career. If we sit here and do a Petra episode and say, well, Petra overcame this and then still went on to do that. And you look at the totality of the second second half of her career through that lens. Okay, fine. But I feel like at this point, she's just out here trying to win tournaments and enjoy herself. And she had really improved her ranking recently, like over the past year or so and she did so without any like massive results no big results at slams except for a fourth round at the u.s open last year she won eastbourne last year and has just been consistent like not spectacular but very consistent we've mentioned recently that she's one of this group of veteran players who are there or thereabouts every week it seems like mm-hmm. recently that you know all this discussion about the wta has been about this supposed big new big three and who are the ones who are the top contenders for slams or whatever. But Petra and Vika, the last year, year and a half, they've been there. And so this is Petra putting her, her hand up and saying, well, hey, I'm still here, one. And two, literally so many people can upend your narrative on any given week on the WTA. Right. I mean, Simona Halep won Canada last year. She's currently on a ban, obviously. But she's of that generation of veterans who are still around and know how to win. Petra's somebody who knows how to win when she gets to a final. So let's talk about this match. Against Yelena Rabakina, who just won Indian Wells, who, after Sabalenka lost, definitely the favorite to win Miami. Iga was out. She's been heralded as part of this new big three. But I think this tournament showed just how difficult it is to win the Sunshine Double, mentally and physically. On both the men and women's side. Yes. And when you come into a final with someone as prepared and calm and composed as Petra, the job is even harder because Rybakina could have won against a lesser opponent. Like, she could have won the Sunshine Double. But Petra was so... I was just struck by how serene she was. She just was super, super dialed in. She knew exactly what she needed to do, and she did it. I'm going to push back against that idea that Petra was prepared at this tournament because she said, I think she spoke to or answered her question by Courtney Nguyen in press as to whether she had a training block ahead of Indian Wells and Miami, the Sunshine Dublin. She said, what do you think? She did it. (laughs) So this was lightning in a bottle for Petra okay. at this tournament. Well, she faked it really well. But I, by prepared, I mean she came in with a game plan, as straightforward as it was. Like, the game plan was hit big serves, kill the forehand, and return aggressively. And she was able to do that. And she did so with making very few errors in the first set. I think that was the most impressive part. We know Petra's reputation on a fast court. Yes. Winning two Wimbledons... Her record at the U.S. Open being the one blemish. She's only made a couple quarterfinals there, but winning in Madrid. The faster clay. 
I think she's won in Madrid two or three times. Also in Stuttgart, Mm -hmm. indoor clay. She has this reputation of being a fast court bully almost. Like when she gets in her zone, she's very tough to beat. But let's give her credit for being an all-surface bully. (laughs) Frankly, because she's won titles across all surfaces. She's done it all. Yeah, she's made semis at Roland Garros. This match itself, though, like the first set was so entertaining. It really was. They played a a classic tiebreak. 30 points, 16 to 14. Rybakina had five set points, lost. Petra needed five set points to win the set. There was a point where Petra had a set point. Uh, A ball was hit back to her on her baseline. Somebody in the crowd called it out. It looked out. She was distracted and lost that point. And I was like, if she loses this set because of what just happened, that will be horrible. This 30-point tiebreak comes after she played a 24-point tiebreak in beating Jesse Pagula in Indian Wells in the third set. Yeah, saved a bunch of match points in that match. Rybakina's serve really kept her in this first set. She hit, uh, I believe, 10 aces in the first set. Her first serve percentage wasn't that great, unfortunately, for her. But she was winning 86% of her first serves. That, I mean, the aces bailed her out a few times. You have here noted, I'll say it a million times, colon, ball bashing can be beautiful. (laughs) It's my policy, really. There are so many different varieties of tennis that can be fun, that can be entertaining. These were two supremely powerful players hitting aces, hitting massive winners. It's fun. Like, it's just exciting. And and I think there is a, a beauty to it because you know the type of preparation and control and focus that goes into playing like that. Like, the rhythm it requires. Her run at Indian Wells and Miami included wins over Ostapenko, Pegula, Vekic, Alexandrova, Kirstea, who, that's notable. <laughs> because Kirstea has had a she's great She's been trying it. And then also in the final against Rybakina, stopping her from getting the Sunshine Double. And I want to say here that I am inducting Petra Kvitova into the Body Serve Hall of Fame. A for a a wonderful career, but more specifically this week, for beating Kirstea in the semifinals. And then also, by winning Miami, she evicted Belinda Bencic from the top 10 and took her spot. (laughs) That was really two birds with one stone situation. Kirstea, I mean, to be fair, had an incredible two tournaments. She beat Caroline Garcia twice. She beat gospel legend Kim Burrell. She beat Arena Sabalenka, the number two player in the world, Muchova, Vondrosova. Uh, it was getting a little scary there, but Petra did what she needed to do. Kirste was up 5-2 in that first set against Petra, and then Petra said, I will not abide. <laughs> Can we talk about the video of Petra shooing that child away after she won? This was so funny to me. So if you haven't seen it, right after Petra won, when she's celebrating, going over to the stands to hug her team... This mother is literally pushing her child right to the edge of the stands to get an autograph. Uh, This is neither the time nor the place. And she's in the way. Like a player is allowed to celebrate with her team after winning a big title. I've never seen a tennis ball that big. (laughs) So Petra hugs folks. 
And then she uses her hand to like wave away the child. And then someone on her team actually like put his hands on the child and ushered her away, which was a little much. Like you probably, you shouldn't touch a, a strange child. But uh, the Petra shooing thing was so funny to me. I've watched it so many times and laughed. I have zero issue with it. The mother really should be ashamed. You should never push your child down there. That's embarrassing for everybody involved. Earlier in the tournament, Barbora Krejcikova took issue with this narrative of the new big three. Essentially saying, well, I'm here. (laughs) Unfortunately for her, she went out and lost her next match in straight sets. Well, but she lost it to somebody, you know, pretty good. Arena Sabalenka? Yes. But that match was seen, at least by me, as box office. Especially after yes. those comments came out. But she's absolutely right. And I fell victim to that discourse, I think, on the last episode. Got a little bit carried away because, in in fact, it's incredibly disrespectful to Barbie Kay, as she is... <laughs> affectionately known on Twitter, as well as Jessica Pagula, mm-hmm. as well as this week, Petra Kvitova. Like, those women, only Iga has multiple slams. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're if you're looking at the folks who've won slams in the past year, yeah, you have kind of a nominal big three. But it doesn't hold up as you go week in, week out. We got to the semifinal stage of this event, and both Carlos Alcaraz and Yelena Rybakina were still in with a shot of winning the Sunshine Double. Carlos was the first to exit stage left, being taken out by Yannick Sinner. The sixth edition of this burgeoning actual rivalry on the ATP Tour. And then, as we said before, Rybakina losing in the final to Kvitova. But on the men's side, your winner is... Surprise, surprise. Somebody who's won four times in the past few weeks, Daniel Medvedev. Uh, First of all, I'm surprised you didn't have more to say about Petra pushing the child out of the way. I figured you'd like that stuff. Honestly, I did not understand why you enjoyed it so much. Really? Come on. I didn't. I swear I didn't. didn't. You've been to many tournaments and parents like push their children into a rush, a crush of people all the time. It's so crazy. I'm, I'm older now. That's my only... Oh, are you, like, not amused on this episode or what? Like, No, I just have to, like, use my feelings sparingly, I think. Mm, Okay. I was happy to sit here and carry on and move on with the episode and not say... And you're, like, chastising me now for not having a reaction. I thought it was funny. I would have put Petra in the Hall of Fame just for that. You are allowed to find things (laughs) funny separate and apart from me. Like, lighten up a little. I just didn't have an opinion on it. Okay, fine. So going back to the men, it seemed like a lot of people were basically writing Carlos into the the winner's circle. Like People were assuming that he had already won. And the history books. (laughs) Right. And there were times during the tournament where I looked at him and was like, he's unbeatable. Like, nobody nobody can beat him. You said that against Sinner as well. I did. I, I watched that first set, and then when Sinner didn't win the first set, when he was so close in the tiebreak, I was like, nobody can beat him at, at this level. It's like he can just produce magic out of nowhere. It's very frustrating, I imagine, for an opponent. But this is where tennis being a sport of matchups comes fully into focus. Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure Daniel Medvedev was thrilled he didn't have to play Alcaraz in that final. 
<laughs> right? Whereas Sinner is one of the very few people on tour who can give Carlos trouble pretty consistently. Yeah, it's been talked about as a rivalry, and now I, I do feel like it is officially a rivalry to watch, right? They had one classic match at the U.S. Open, but I think Yannick needed another win to convince people that he's going to be a consistent threat against Carlos. Because, I mean, the tennis media, folks on TV, like, they have anointed Carlos. He's getting the the young Federer treatment. Everything he does is messianic. So I think it's super important to have, have people out there like Sinner who can frustrate him. And not just have to wait for, well, maybe somebody will beat him in the final. Like, this is where the, the depth on the ATP tour needs to elevate itself to the point where you have people making quarterfinals routinely and playing the same people and having flip-floppity results against each other. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Right so, now, we still just have a lot of players with a lot of promise. And I think that Sinner is on the cusp of taking that next step. Like, he is very close. Totally. Uh, he has Darren Cahill in his corner. He has... I mean, showed more mental fortitude than I expected in that semifinal against Carlos. Not that I expected him to, like, fold up and go home. It's just that sometimes Carlos's fitness and shot-making lobs, drop shots, like, they're just so demoralizing. Well, you kind of did not expect him to win that match after losing that first set tiebreak. No. No, that's what I'm saying. I, I was impressed by what yeah, he but did. But you're saying, but not that I expect him to fold up, shop, and go home. Oh, you expected well, him to I lose guess, after that. I guess I did after that. Yeah. So let's talk about this match a little bit. And then we'll go back to the final. This this final or this semifinal was box office. People were talking about it. And it's exciting. Like, And it was a rematch of the previous tournament at Indian Wells. They played in the semis there as well. Mm -hmm. It felt like the match was really making noise outside of tennis, which is obviously so important as the big names aren't here. And you can say that, oh, we're missing Kyrgios, but no, the truth is we're missing Djokovic in it all. That's... Who, who are the people saying that at this point? <laughs> well, like, honestly, right? nobody is missing Nick Kyrgios that I know of. Well, I guess some people are, but the point is you need matches to, like, leave the tennis world and, and make noise on social media. And this match gave us a point that did that. And of course, there's there's always hyperbole, like, this is the best point I've ever seen in my life, and whatever, it's fine. You know, it's it doesn't bother me, because regardless, we know that that's exaggeration, but it's getting people talking about tennis and getting excited about tennis outside of the sport. Sure. <laughs> like, we've lived, <sighs> we just lived through the Big Three era. We saw those points routinely, constantly. So it's one of two things. It's either you're like me... And I can barely remember tennis that I've watched or spoken about five minutes after I've watched it. Yes. That I remember so little tennis, even though I've watched it. No, I agree. Or you're being deliberately obtuse for clicks. It's one of those well, two I, things. You know, everybody wants to say, oh, this movie I saw, this is one of the greatest films I've ever seen. You know, it adds weight to whatever you're saying. But tennis is a sport I read, I can't remember who wrote this, but a few years ago I read uh, something where they kind of argued that tennis is really difficult to remember because as a sport, the way it's set up, it doesn't have a lot of like, uh, what's the, how do you describe it? Like in football or in baseball, 
there are fewer plays and it's easier to remember like the touchdown pass. Mm. It's easier to remember the grand slam. Right, because a a point like this can happen at one all in the first set. And it has no stakes to the overall outcome of the match. Totally. Or tennis history. And you play so many points in a match that I think as a viewer to say that, oh, I've watched all these matches and I can remember most of what I watched. I don't think that's true. I think we think we can remember, but we really don't. Right, but I'm saying I remember shockingly little. (laughs) No, me too. Like barely anything. Seriously. But my point in saying this, we, we lived through... Fedal, we lived through Raffolet, we lived through Andy Murray trying to make a dent into that three-headed monster. Like mm-hmm. the, the points just on the men's side, say nothing on the woman's side. Right. <laughs> the well, points that we've seen in the last 20 years to watch that and instead of be like, oh my god, watch that point awesome, to be like, oh my god, the greatest thing I've ever seen. Like that's I mean, You're, we're, we're doing everybody involved a disservice here outside of getting eyes on the sport, which I don't think was the goal to begin with. When Rafa and Nole play, you know, people say that about 15 points within a match, right? That this is the greatest. Every time they play, it's the greatest matchup on clay in history. Like hyperbole is a part of sport. There are no awards for the best point, <laughs> right? And so... Ultimately, I don't think it's that serious, except hyperbole just sort of annoys me. But I don't have a way, I don't have like any good reason to say, oh, you sh- you need to stop this. No, I do. Okay. It clogs up my timeline. I have to see it endlessly. And it's just so that you can get like an extra hundred retweets. <laughs> like, I don't like it. Sure, sure. But if you look at its utility, I mean, because we love tennis, we want tennis to thrive, right? Is it getting people to watch the sport? That's important, if it is. Sure, and if it get, gets picked up by all these outside outlets and they they say that, okay, fine, they don't know any better, but to have it originate from people who should know better, that annoys me. That's all. <laughs> okay. That's all I'm saying. Now, I will say this match was very exciting. Sinner kept it close. They were in a tie break. He was up a mini break. And it felt like he just made a mental mistake, right? He was serving up a mini break. He hit... This drop shot, he had no business hitting. It barely reached the net. And then Carlos just ran away with it. It was so quick. I, and it felt like, you know, it felt like at that moment, oh, this tiebreak has disappeared. Like Yannick has given up his advantage because the first set was so close. And it felt like any tiny mental mistake Carlos would pounce on. And he did. Mm-hmm. But the thing that ended up making Carlos fallible in this match and the thing to really look for as he's still just 19 years old, is his fitness and how he his body reacts to certain tense and arduous moments in matches because he was not physically all there in the third no, set. No, I was surprised by that. So in the second set, like you said earlier, I kind of expected Yannick to go away a little bit, and he didn't. He got a lead. He even looked like his legs were about to fall out from under him. He was able to to stay in it. And then Carlos appeared that he was cramping in the third set. And the third set wasn't that dramatic. It wasn't that great. Uh, So overall, like the match was not a classic, but it was most definitely entertaining and dramatic. It was an excellent first set of tennis. Yes, yes. Medvedev reached that final with a bit of fatigue himself having played so many tournaments, going deep in so many tournaments the last few weeks, 
and then coming off a semi-final win against Karen Hachanov, where he won 6-3 in the third, and looked a little bit depleted himself there. But when it came to the final, that did not look in doubt at any point, really. Yeah, this was going to be tough for Sinner regardless. The thing is, Medvedev is able to rush through his own service games. He's able to win a lot of quick points on his serve. And it just felt like he's also able to dig into Yannick's serve games more. Mm. And and so if Yannick is tired, that's a big problem. And also you do not want to be caught in extended rallies against Medvedev. Well, the problem is Daniil returns from so far back in the court. Mm-hmm. That even if you have a big serve, even if you can hit angles, he's so gangly and long wingspanned that he can get most balls back into court on return and then be able to get to a point of neutrality pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Whereas his serve up the tee is one of the most unreturnable serves in all of tennis. Because not only is he placing it, he's placing it almost every time spinning away from the right-hander or on the backhand side if you're a lefty. Mm -hmm. His serve in person is really special to watch. So my point in saying that is that he has a lot more margin for error on return than a lot of these other folks based on his return position. Yeah. And when you couple that with how quickly he's able to get through his service games when he's serving well, it's a tough ask. Once he gets a bit of momentum, he can just run away with it. And so if you're Yannick, what do you do? Do you serve in volley? Do you chip in charge? Uh, It's easier said than done, but it's definitely giving him a different look and forcing him to net more. He did a bit of serve and volley Mm -hmm. in that match. But uh, Daniel's past month, two months, has just been incredible. And we're not going to talk about like who has done this before because I've seen a lot of fake stats, one of which uh, duped me on a previous episode. (laughs) But he has won four tournaments in his past five. One in Rotterdam, one in Doha, then Dubai, made the final, Indian Wells, and now winning in Miami. All the way up to number four. And this is a a serious return to form after his 2022 season was kind of derailed after losing to Rafa in that Australian Open final. Had injury concerns as well and was just never ever really able to recapture his top form especially on hard courts yeah it was a ho-hum season for him he he had a spark at the end of the year that he's carried through but right after the australian open he briefly dropped out of the top 10 for the first time in a long time and i don't know if that lit a fire or what but he's now back to number four medvedev is also the one who ended christopher eubanks's dream run in miami Yeah, yeah. Making the quarterfinals, biggest payday of his career, jumping something like 34 spots in the rankings to crack the top 100 for the first time, this week being the world number 85. And credit to Chris as well, because he gave a very good account of himself in that quarterfinal. It was not embarrassing by any stretch, losing 6-3-7-5. This after beating Manorino in the round of 16, a loss that was... Very displeasing to Manorino. <laughs> uh, the The handshake was very brief and salty, and I was sitting there like, "What is? What's his problem?" And he gave an interview after, and I've only seen a translation, so I don't really want to make a lot of judgment about it. Uh, 
I don't know how it was translated or what the context is, but he seemed a little bit just frustrated that Eubanks was zoning. It's hard to play somebody who who it feels like everything they try is going to work. And it was especially evident on match point, where he hit a ridiculous backhand to win. This is the type of feel-good story that I'm all here for in tennis. Yeah, we we saw Chris years ago at Cincinnati. He was still a, a Georgia Tech, what are they called? Yellow Jackets? He was still a, a great college player, and he was playing Cincinnati. He won, I think, a main draw match. And he was in his third year going to his fourth, and everyone wanted to know if he was going to go pro or stay in school. He left school, went pro, and it's been... It's been a tough few years, right? He's been outside the top 100. He's done tennis channel commentating, which which folks seem to love. Again, unfortunately, we don't really see it that often here. But we've been rooting for him ever since. It's just he just seems like such a cool guy. He's fun to root for. It's the type of win that can prolong someone's career. How long can you carry on playing outside of the top 100 feasibly? A win like this gives you confidence that you can beat damn near anybody on the ATP tour. Got a different look at what that might be with playing Medvedev that you could tell in the quality of opponents and watching all of Chris's matches that that was a completely different level of tennis right. being played by his opponent that day. But a win like this gives you the confidence to then say, I'm for sure a top 50 player. I can be that consistently. And it also gives you the resources to travel to different places, hire new people on your team. You're able to fund your career potentially longer. Right. If you're not subsidized by a national federation or you're not independently wealthy, a lot of these guys at that stage at like 100 and above are not bringing their coaches around. They can maybe afford to bring their coach to only certain tournaments. Mm-hmm. And is it any accident or coincidence that in the last year or so we've seen him taking tennis channel gigs? Like right. There's clearly an idea of what his career might look like after his playing days. Mm-hmm. A couple more things on Chris Eubanks. I'm excited to see what the rest of the year holds for him now with this buffer, with his new ranking, the new opportunities he'll have. And also, it was really cool to see the support that he got from the crowd and also by some of the celebrities. He had Jamie Foxx out here caping for him online and in person. Yeah. Repeatedly. Chris's friend, Coco Goff, won the doubles title with Jesse Begula. This is their third 1,000-level title. And what a great final this was with Goff, Begula versus Townsend and Fernandez. There's a few kind of exciting things going on here. Taylor Townsend, since returning from maternity leave, has built up just a great doubles career. She has reached the slam final, Roland Garros semifinal, runner-up here. She's won two 500 titles, done all that, and still hasn't touched the top 10 in doubles. She's gotten to a career high of 14 this week. But Goff Pagula are really the rare top singles players who are playing doubles consistently. You know, a lot of top singles players will play at the slams, but not many play week in, week out like they do. At this current point in WTA history. Right, right. 
it used to be commonplace, of course, but it's it's really not anymore. They actually got a write-up in The New Yorker by Jerry Marzorati. This is unusual, but uh, he called them the most exciting thing to happen to American doubles tennis since the Bryans retired. One of the Bryans is now the head of Davis Cup. The captain. Captain. Of the U.S. Davis Cup. Yes. <laughs> Do you so know he, which Brian? I don't. Honestly, I, I should, but I don't. It's a 50-50 chance that it's one or the other. But you saw that Brian at a lot of the matches these past few weeks. Mm-hmm. Patrick McEnroe was once the captain. Now he uh, is leading the International Tennis Hall of Fame. So, like, <laughs> I just have to laugh at this point. Some sad news for Bianca Andrescu. We talked on the last episode about how she looked like she was back-back. Like, really hitting her stride, finding some top form. And then in Miami, she suffers a horrific ankle injury and has to be wheeled off the court. And we learn a couple days later that she suffered a couple torn ligaments in her ankle. She really has a remarkable attitude. Because just the next morning... She was thanking fans on Twitter and showing good humor about the situation. It was, I mean, people were distressed watching it. You know, it was really difficult to watch and she was clearly in a lot of pain. As she had beaten Raducanu, Sakari, and Kennan that week. And of course, we asked on the last episode, it was more of a question, like, is Bianca back? And then her run in Miami was like, oh God, I, I think she is. And then this injury, it's so frustrating. And then when this injury happens, we have these people on Twitter writing things like, I don't want to be the one to speculate, but this reminds me of when Bethany Maddox-Sands had her injury at Wimbledon. I don't want to speculate, but <laughs> oh, this but looks this like is Achilles. Achilles, this could be months upon months. This could, She could be out for a very, very, very long time, mere minutes after this has happened. It is... The height of distastefulness. Like, what are you... I don't know what you gain by by diagnosing somebody. It's this need to be first. Yeah. Right? It's this need to be the one to have called it. It's in step with the whole, this is the greatest point I've ever seen. It's a disease. <laughs> being right is more important than being first. It's ideal to be both. News this week as well that Wimbledon will now allow everybody to play... At the All England Club this year, provided a couple stipulations are met. Wimbledon has made the, quote, incredibly difficult decision, largely due to the consequences of what happened last year, the ATP and WTA taking points away from Wimbledon, and the financial burden, the fine, and the hit to the LTA. They've made the decision to allow Russian and Belarusian players to play Wimbledon. The fact that their lead-up tournaments may have been in jeopardy. Yeah. Had this decision been been doubled down on for a second year. So their major revenue sources were at risk. Now, Russian and Belarusian players can play provided that they sign declarations of neutrality. And additionally, any players who continuously receive funding from those governments are still banned. So you, you cannot take funding from Russia or Belarus, and you have to sign a declaration of neutrality. Petra Gavinova said this week that she doesn't think 
Russian and Belarusian players should be allowed to play Wimbledon or the Olympics. She was more firm about the Olympics. Like the Olympics were a no-brainer for her. Mm-hmm. Which, if there is one tournament that these players could be or maybe should be banned from, it is the Olympics. Right. The Olympics are a centuries-long exhibition of nationalistic propaganda. Indeed. And so to have these players representing those countries on that stage at this time, I can see how we get to that step. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about these player declarations. Uh, What are the consequences of signing them back home? Uh, Like, what do the declarations look like? We know, like, there have been conflicts behind the scenes. Some players have talked about it. Some other players have downplayed them. For example, Medvedev said he's had no no arguments or anything in the locker room, but Sabalenka says she has. Let's just be clear. This situation sucks for everybody. There, there are no winners here. This is literally a war where people are being killed, where civilians are being targeted. Like, tennis is not important. Right, but it does suck more for some people than others. Indeed. I'd be curious to see what it is that these players are asked to declare. Yes. Like, what is it that you are attesting to? What is the actual written language of this declaration? Yeah. The All England Club said they have uh, gone through, quote, extensive engagement with the government and tennis stakeholder bodies, unquote, to develop the declarations and then how to implement them and how to enforce them. I, I mean, a few Russian players last year said, let us let us play and we will essentially declare that we are neutral or that we're against the, the war. And Andrei Rublev was one of them. Yes, that's what I'm thinking of. Uh, and so this is what's required this year. Now, Wimbledon uh, and the UK government are clearly not happy about it. <laughs> like, they intimated that they were their hand was forced and that they found the actions of the ATP and WTA reprehensible, but those actions worked, for better or for worse. The ATP and WTA accomplished what they wanted to. Everybody involved was protecting their own best interest. Yes. With Wimbledon maybe being strong-armed a little bit by the UK government. Yes, by their own government. Rafael Nadal may be returning at Monte Carlo, but we don't know. It starts next week. He will not commit because he says there is a lot of work to do. He's he's back to training. We've seen a lot of videos of him training at the academy on clay, but he still stops short of saying, yes, I will play MC. He's on the entry list. I haven't seen many, if any, videos of him in high-intensity practice. Right. And the quote that's attributed to him here doesn't necessarily give me, as a fan, a whole lot of... uh, Assurance? (laughs) Assurance (laughs) that, you know, this is a return that's imminent or that it's a return that he has great confidence in being super successful to the point where he's expected to win Roland Garros again. Mm -hmm. He says, quote, I really hope to see you again this year at Roland Garros and I'll try to be competitive. (laughs) try right but you do have to read this in rafa speak yes he always always downplays his chances he always wants you to be overwhelmed 
Like, he wants to set expectations low. Which is why so his haters and detractors hate and despise him. Because <laughs> right. they feel like he's been stunting in their faces for years, yeah. for decades. Downplaying his injuries and then, look, there he is. Mm-hmm. But realistically, if this is uh, another burst that could be, you know, among his last, he needs to to be very, very careful that the ab is fully healed, Last year, he had the rib injury on top of all the other horrible stuff with the nerves in his foot. I believe that it's going to take a lot of foundational work to get this body right if he wants to make a real run. If you've been a a fan of men's tennis for the last, what, 10 years, you may be wondering, well, well, what has happened to Luca Puy? Mm -hmm. And we got some news on that from... The man himself. Yeah. A a few years ago, in 2018, 2019, he was being coached by Emily Moresmo. He was really breaking out. He beat Rafa Nadal, I think, at the U.S. Open. He made a few slam quarters, an Australian Open semi. And then, you know, he kind of disappeared. And he said that, you know, a lot of it was injuries, but he dealt with some depression, some substance use. And he told Lakeep that after the grass season last year, he became really depressed. He was sleeping one hour per night. He was drinking by himself, and it was really his his lowest point. And he said that that period where he was super successful, when it was all taken away because of injuries, he had a, a just a very tough time dealing with it. He's 29 years old now, just had his birthday in February. He's won five ATP titles. And like you said, semis at the Australian Open in 2019, quarters, back-to-back quarters at Wimbledon and the U.S. Open in 2016. He has started playing challengers again. He said after that grass season in 2022, when he was feeling really low, he didn't pick up a racket for pretty much the rest of the year. He has started playing challengers again this year, but plans to make a, a bigger return to tennis, a more serious return. And he said that part of it was he knew he had to mourn that period where he was very successful and making a lot of money and he was younger. And it took some humility to come back and say, well, I have to play at the challenger level and I'm going to make maybe no money and go through this like a lot of players have gone through it because I'm not where I want to be yet. He made the semifinal in Australia in 2019. That was the year he was coached by Moresmo, mm-hmm. right? And then he misses all of 2020. His first slam back is at the 2021 French Open. Plays five slams in a row, doesn't get out of the first round in any of them. And he's been off the tour since the middle of last year. Mm-hmm. We know that being on tour can often be an isolating experience. And so... Mm-hmm. It's important, and thank you to him for shedding light on what I'm sure it's like for a lot of players. He's not unique in having gone through this, and I'm sure he's not the only one. You're seeing more and more players be open about depression and about isolation and other mental health issues, and it can only be a good thing. Garbinia Muguruza today posted on Instagram that she is spending time with family and friends, and it's really been healthy and amazing, so I'm going to lengthen this period till summer. Therefore, I'm going to miss the clay and grass season. Just like that, Garbina's career like took a really bad turn. She won the WTA finals, 
and then just had a horrible stretch and she's been off the tour she's she's just taken time for herself like to have the wherewithal and the self-knowledge to say i just i just need to leave i need to take a break for a while that's great otherwise what is the point you're right. out here competing and losing week to week and having those bad feelings compound it's like a vicious cycle right meanwhile people are looking at you like you are garbinia muguruza you should be winning this 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 and that but you are clearly not the garbinia muguruza in that moment right meanwhile you have all these young people hatching and snatching <laughs> you have this new alleged big three you've got petra kvitova coming back from five years of never winning a Masters 1000 and just doing it like that, you know, making it look so easy. Mm. What do you feel? Yeah. Being with her in Miami like, can you and imagine watching it happen. The FOMO that almost every player feels like that should be me. So I'm glad that Garbina is taking time away and she's open about it. Like this time has been healthy for me. And guess what? I'm missing my two best surfaces because I have more important things to do. They're independent contractors, right? They work when they want to. That's how it should be. And at the end of the day, she's a person of means who is able to afford to do this. Well, yes. <laughs> and so she should. Mm. You know, like, just because Garbina Magrutha fan club out there is keyboard warring everywhere. Where, where is Garbina? Where is she? Where is she? Oh my God, I'm dying. Where? When will she pop mm. up next? That's not reason for you to... Right. To show up when you're not ready. Well, of course, they want her back. But there's also, you know, for every player, there's just a lot of haters about you're such a loser. You should be playing way better than you are. You suck. Like, And you... she's one of the players who's taken the brunt of that. Yeah, totally. On social media. People are ruthless toward her. One final thing before we go, I want to make sure that we give Petra her props, her proper props on this episode, because there are few tennis players on either tour with her resume true with what she's accomplished you may make the argument that petra has underachieved in her career which you could if you want but she still accomplished a hell of a lot and on top of that she's one of those players that when you watch her in full flight you know you're watching somebody special she does things on a tennis court that most who've ever picked up the racket could only dream of doing. Mm -hmm. She's one of the few players who get that word peak in front of her name. People talk about peak Petra, peak Mary Pierce, peak Serena. The things that she can do, some folks feel that no one can do. That she can reach a level that even if she's playing a goat, that goat has to be peak as well <laughs> right? to beat her. Like her peak is that high. And while I'm sure it's been frustrating for a lot of her fans to watch her over the years because she hasn't always been able to tap into that peak Petra consistently, when it arrives, it is truly special. And that is what we saw in Miami this week. And even doubly special for her, I'm sure, to do it at this stage in her career. Mm -hmm. And against these players who are supposedly occupants of the WTA penthouse. Mm -hmm. Let me just say... It was a reminder to the girls. <laughs> Be ready. Let me just say, I do feel... I feel like we're getting toward a sweet spot again in women's tennis. 
it you know it hasn't always been my favorite but i think we're we're really getting there there is it's not a big 3 but there are players who are rising to the top and there are very exciting matchups throughout draws constantly but there is like a tier 1 that's bubbling to the top and i think it's really exciting and i think men's tennis you guys you know you'll get there wishing them luck but will they <laughs> maybe <laughs> But with, you know, with Carlos asserting himself, like, will he dominate like like one of the greats? Maybe, maybe not. And maybe that's not what we need. There was a bit of coaching kerfuffle today, whereby Holgaruna announced his split from Patrick. And then on the same day, Coco Goff said her and her coach were parting ways. Oh, Lord. And so oh, people God. are reading the tea leaves. And we know that Coco's had an association with that academy mm-hmm. for a while. And the timing of those two things has sent some into a spiral. Not a spiral of <laughs> excitement, mind no, you. No, A spiral a, of a fear. A eddy of despair. And dread. <laughs> so that's something to look out for. <laughs> right. Or maybe it means that Simona's defense was successful. Yeah. You never know. We may be hearing about that soon as well. It could be the Linguini defense. Well, Tortellini was already taken. (laughs) I'm just saying. Okay. That brings us to the end of episode 297. We may have something special planned for 300. Not willing to talk about it yet. Our tricentennial. Mm -hmm. We're in... We'll be entering our Brian Lara era. (laughs) Of triple century. (laughs) He he of the he has a quadruple century, right? And a quintuple century. Really? At first class cricket, yes. Okay. I forgot the number. He's the only to have done the three, four, five treble. Well, put that in your pipe and smoke it. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. This is The Body Serve. You can find everything Body Serve related at linktree.com slash thebodyserve. Thanks for listening. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.